0: This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self Storage Income. Welcome everybody to Self Storage Income. So excited for today's podcast. Um, as always, we have my trusted co-host Connor here with us. How's it going, man? It's going
1: awesome, dude. It's going awesome. Uh, just jacked with everything going on, man. There's a lot of things happening. A lot of things happening. Uh, we had a big company meeting today with everybody and kind of went over all the exciting things going on, new developments, uh, conversions, all these kinds of things. Um, then we kind of started talking podcast topics and you brought this one up. Yes. And...
0: Uh, I'm super excited to jump into it. It's a fantastic, fantastic topic. It is. You know, it's one, we. there's a lot of questions I think we get repeatedly, um, and this is one of them. And and it's not that it's a hard one, but there's a lot of different aspects to it. So I've kind of waited to really bring it up um, and talk about it, but I keep getting it. So I guess I wanted to share, you know, our experience. And now we've approached and done these things. So the question is, and is should I invest out of state? And how do I do that, I guess? Um, now, it's a good question. I think, first of all, um, there's a few scenarios, a few things we want to talk about. It, As all things in finance, investing, everything, it's not – cut and dry there's no yes or no there's pros and cons that you need to weigh that you need to think about um these you know self storage the asset classes how you invest where you're investing these depend on a lot of different parameters and no two people are the same but with that said i started um not out of state i guess you would say but yeah i did i started investing in other states and the one that we started in, although it was in my state, we live in a very big state. It was nine hours away. So, for most people, I think they would consider that out of state. You had to jump on a flight to go see it. So, it's a long ways. Yeah. I think um, when I'm looking at this, first and foremost, how we do things now, um, uh, it was, I did not invest in our area until later on in our investing. Um, in our business. Uh, the reason being is I've always cared about one thing first and foremost, and that's a good deal. I never want to put convenience over returns. And I guess I didn't so much associate risk um, at a state, even though that's not true. There's obviously things you have to account for and apply in. But I know a lot of people want to invest in their backyard and I see more people get burned by that because I just think it's, you're not putting the most important things first. And lots of time you take on risk with the idea that you're reducing it somehow because it's close to you when customers and assets, they don't care. It's not like anyone cares that it's 30 minutes as opposed to four hours from you. That has nothing to do with the economics of your assets performance. Now, it does have to do with operational performance, and I don't want to confuse those two things. But with that said, um, those two things weren't the operational performance for me, I was never going to be sitting at my storage facility running it. That was never in my plans. It's not how we we did things or operated. So I guess that didn't, when I took that out of the equation, as long as I could set up the right things to do, it didn't matter. So when looking at it, I kind of want to walk through how we did that, why we do that. Um, We're looking, uh, the one we're closing on right now is... I don't know how many miles. It's in Kansas City. We're in Boise, Idaho. Dude, I don't even uh, know. Yeah. It's, we're looking in Iowa. It's across the country. Exactly. The East Coast. Um, we look in markets that I've never been to constantly, all the time.
1: For sure. Well, and you're just applying those same basic concepts of identifying a good market and a good deal. And again, yes. I mean, we've touched on this so many times on the podcast where a good deal is a good deal. It doesn't matter where it's at, when it's at. Like, it, yeah, it is what it is. It is what it is. All the time, you
0: know. And after we identify the good deal, then we identify how we're going to operate it and if we can succeed in doing that. Now, there is a difference between buying smaller assets and larger assets because some can afford on-site managers and a lot closer um, handle on things. So let me put it this way, when I was starting out, I wouldn't have been investing in... Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, those markets would have been so unfamiliar to me newly in my investing um, career that I would have incurred risk, but not not risk as you think about it. It would have been risk from my lack of knowledge. Um, and I, I didn't know exactly what to look for, things like that. So I'm not saying, yeah, go buy things in China and it doesn't matter. It does matter. You need to know how you're going to operate those facilities. You need to make sure you do understand the market. And so generally speaking, when I started out, I wanted to really focus on areas that I knew, but that area was large. And so I said the you know the Pacific Northwest, which – to us, I don't know how others include that. It's a vague term. Yeah. <laughs> but that's um, roughly speaking Idaho, Oregon, Mon- Washington, and Montana. That's how we were classifying that region um, of the United States. It's an extremely large geographic area. Um, but we felt comfortable, and I knew those markets. Definitely, that's
1: a huge, huge portion of that that you're touching on. There is, is actually knowing that market, being familiar with it. Um, I think that's that's one of the main drivers for a lot of people, and where this question comes from is they they want to invest in places they feel comfortable. You know, yes, um, and to a degree, like you're saying, it, it does make sense yeah. as long as you understand and know
0: that market. Exactly. So. And everybody's listening It's like, okay, so you said yes and no, and that's right. I did say yes and no because uh, <laughs> yes. the important thing here is, is once again that you understand the economics of the asset, how it will be affected, okay, and you can implement on that strategy. But the, also, the important thing here is you don't trump location over a good deal because lo- because the proximity to you doesn't mean that it's going to succeed. Nor does that mean that it's going to be a good deal. So you have to weigh these two things at once, right? Um, When I look at it, um, this is a lot of times how overbuilt markets get overbuilt, right? So Idaho, for example, we just hit the 2020 self-storage almanac as the most square foot of any state per person in the United States. One of the reasons this is, is because Boise and its metro area is an economic island, right? So we are the most isolated metropolitan area in the United States. The next city for us to go to that has a population over 50,000 is, I think, Portland. I think that's the closest one. Or It's Portland or Salt Lake. One of those two. Hmm. So for us, you're going to Salt Lake, Portland, Seattle. After that, you're going to Denver or the Bay Area. I mean, it's if you're in Boise and you want to go to a metropolitan area, you are driving six plus hours or you're getting on a flight. So people here, there's a lot of economic activity and people that want to get into those asset classes, they view as this is the place to do. So they all build at the same time and it's a booming market. So it's it's prone to those things. So for us, when we started out, we didn't come here. We The economics trumped our comfort and location. And we looked for places that would give us better returns. And because of that, when the downturn happened and Boise was astronomically oversupplied in 2008 of everything, um, Boise was crushed. Um, We weren't. Why? Because I didn't care that I lived here. Um, That probably saved us. Um, We went into markets that were not overbuilt. They were not... Hyper growth markets that were boom and busts. Um, and we looked for stable, good assets at decent prices um, because those kind of things also inflate assets. You, you know, you'll have assets that will trade here the same as they'll trade in the Bay Area. That's fundamentally doesn't make sense. Um, and uh, so when it gets like that, we did. Now, after it crashed, then there was an opposite effect. Because we were a second tier market, there was no capital coming in anymore. Things dried up, banks wouldn't even lend here. And so there was nothing being built and the cap rates skyrocketed. Um, so we took advantage and we bought a bunch of facilities here. Um, immediately after we stopped buying. So we haven't bought anything here for I don't know, four <laughs> or five years. Yeah, and years we, you know, that's kind of how it works. Um, so when I look at where I live in my backyard, that's what I looked for. I Starting out, I didn't invest here because there was no good deals. There became deals. Okay, I'll invest here um, because we could ride out the boom and the busts. So with that, now we're in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Nevada, Kansas. Um, we're under contract in a few other states, which we're expanding to. We're looking at the um, Southeast, the Midwest, um, and those markets are really good markets. We like them a lot. Uh, so we've moved out of a large portion out of the Northwest because it's so overbuilt, um, much like Texas. It doesn't mean we won't buy here. If there's a good deal, we will, but, what I'm trying to express is that's that our investing criteria isn't defined by a location.
1: Mm-hmm. So, which is which is kind of ironic because you always hear the location, location, location. Yes,
0: exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like, wait a second. No, like yes. that's number two, man. No, we look for the asset, the asset's yeah. performance, and uh, we look at the deal we're going to get. And so now let's go back down though. Okay, AJ, you say that, but how do I get over a lot of these hurdles? Now- the reason why I talk about where I live is because when I look at other people, especially people in the East Coast or the Southeast and everything, I'm like, you are within a three hour drive of tons of cities that have great demographics that are large cities. I mean, I go over to the East Coast and I'm like, geez, I, I could drive past, you know, 10 cities that have a million people. In the time that it would take me to get to one city that has twenty thousand people, you know, it's just it's a different world, and there's so many opportunities in most markets to take a day's drive or a quick flight and drive out. And there's a lot of lot of opportunity options. Um, When I look at these, what you need to do is you need to identify the correct market asset that you want to be in. And then you need to figure out the big portion. And this is where the risk comes in. And that's operational um, aptitude, your ability to not just run, but really turn that asset around and make sure it performs very, very well. So um, this is the part that I think most people need to get over. And this is the part that um, get over, I mean, figure out a way how and how to execute that in a um consistent measurable way um that is repeatable and uh, there's a few ways that you can do this now i'm going to divide up assets into under 50,000 square feet and over 50,000 square feet um because operationally speaking they can be very different so a 100,000 square foot facility versus a 15,000 square foot facility are two totally different things um smaller assets Uh, There's not as much revenue to provide as many services, right? So the farther away it is, you you don't have as much resources, right, to execute. Now, you have to remember, that's how I started. Very small assets, very small away, or very small away, very far away. Um, But so what we did and how we overcame this is twofold. The use of technology is really important, and then local resources. So... Now, although, yes, self-storage can be automated to an extent. There is no such thing, though, as a completely hands-off storage facility. That doesn't exist. It's not true. Well, and you've talked about that. And and a perfect
1: example came up last week um, during our Inner Circle call. um, John Lindsay had had a facility that somebody had gotten some kiosks set in place at a facility. And they were under that impression that – this was an automated facility, 100%, right? You didn't yes. have to do anything. Um, so the kiosks, they've been running, doing their thing. Uh, the facility hasn't been running and doing its thing. Oh, <laughs> so it's a, it's, a prime, uh, yeah. it's a prime facility it's a for somebody to pick up. It's vacancy. And, yeah. Yeah. And so.
0: it just, things weren't getting done. And uh, I'm not saying you need a manager, but you do need a manager. As in, somebody has to do a few things. Somebody has to change locks. Somebody has to clean units. Somebody has to periodically do maintenance on the property. Somebody has to do certain things. This is a physical asset. Mm-hmm. Now, my first facilities did not have on-site managers. What we did is we contracted out with local people like local property management companies, and I give them a detailed list. And I said, listen, I'm going to run the back end of this. So I implemented things like call centers, um, online strategies, and then I'd contract out with a property management company, not a self-storage property management company. Let me make that very clear. There weren't any that were of any size or any good. In those markets. And most of the time, with assets that small, they charge way too much and it doesn't even make sense to have them, um, or they're not in those markets, period. So, was that before or after you had taken over that
1: facility? Uh, I can't remember which one it was that had a third party management, a self storage third party management company.
0: Yes. So that was. after we took it over, yeah. we got rid of the third-party management company. We contracted out with a local, um, I think this one was a local real estate agent. So nice. I like to look at people that are real estate agents, um, even tow companies tend to be good because what I do is I make a list and I say, listen, I'm going to send you an email within this time frame. I need our lock removed. I need the unit cleaned and I need it shut, ready to have um, somebody that can come in and move in. Right, so that way, once a person has rented the unit via online or our call center, somebody is actually out there. Once somebody moves out, I need somebody to be there to verify that everything was moved out, to verify that they're not junk left, and also I need somebody to come and check during auctions. We do online auctions, and I need somebody to verify that the online auction was executed, the lock was removed, and that somebody had access to those things. So there's things that you have to do on site that. Mm-hmm. You- you can't automate this. And I love um, how you guys
1: went about that. Like
0: it's kind of like that
1: outside yeah. of the box, like, oh, I'm not just going to go get a, you know, self-storage third-party management company. I'm going to go and talk to some of these other guys that they might actually, like a tow company where it's yeah. like, not only can they go and do X, Y, and Z for me that I needed them to do, that's quote unquote, like outside of their wheelhouse, but they can also tow vehicles that I might yes. may or may not need towed yes. from the facility and things
0: like that. I, I love that idea. And that's we paid awesome. them a flat fee. That was way less than paying a property management company that would have just tanked our returns on those assets. And then we utilized our online and we utilized all those kinds of stuff. So even if you have a fully automated facility, you still have to have someone come do all those things, right? So that's once again why we say there is no such thing as a fully automated facility um, or completely hands-off storage facility. It doesn't exist. Some functions have to be performed and it's dictated by law. I mean, you just can't not. So with that said, there are ways though to get around that. Um, we look at trusted people, uh, real estate agent shops, lots of times they will have some property management components in it and they will be seeing people that are moving and they can also push the units for sale. So we've done that too. Um, and uh, that way we could have eyes and ears on the ground. We have email, we have our call center that's running it. And then we would go up every quarter, we would do checks and audits. Um, and we'd have someone there to maintain the ground, which we would um, uh, pay someone to come whatever it was once a month or something like that, or once a week and take care of things. Um, so we would farm out all those things. We would uh, Then we could really focus on getting people in the door and making sure. And that worked very well. Um, in fact, the one where we actually had a property management company that was going to take over the operations, like you mentioned, they were doing a horrible job and we took over it and we contracted out with a guy at a tow company and we filled the facility out. <laughs> so That's it was amazing. Dude. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, at a fraction of the cost. And so when I look at operating storage facilities, small facilities and third party uh, or in other areas, those are the kind of things that we do. Now, large facilities, that's a lot easier for us. Um, one of the things that you got to remember, because we have on uh, um, managers on site, the key to running your facilities out of state or at a long distance is documentation is so important. Um, audits on the facility that are irregular, From the standpoint of the people you contact tracked out with don't know when they're going to happen, but they're continuous to where you're doing them like four times a year. Um, You've got work. The upfront work takes a little more, especially when you're taking over the facility. You need to make sure your software can do this, but uh, you need to have online rental capabilities. We do not take you, you know, it's easier with small facilities because you don't have someone on site. Don't take cash do it all credit card and all online. And, uh, that, you know, that, that eases this whole process and it solidifies it. So you're not, you're not having any of those, those issues or problems. And you can have your monthly meetings, different things like that, but you pay those people a flat fee. Um, and you monitor it from afar. One of the reasons why we did it this way too was I had not just a full-time job. I had a beyond full-time job. You know, I had a job where I was working 60 plus hours a week. And so that's what I did and how I had to get started. I had a sales job. And so me and my partner, we were extremely busy. I, I couldn't. In fact, I didn't make it up four times a quarter, right? Um, I made it up once a year, which I don't suggest that. You need to be going up more than that. Um, But it was totally doable and it worked great. And it taught us how to build in systems. And for us too, it made us so we could grow faster because we weren't defined by geographic reach. And then all of a sudden, when we were getting bigger facilities that had managers, we're like, wow, this is way easier. And Mm -hmm. uh, then we just implemented everything that we used and added the manager on. And then we had reporting systems that would come in and we'd watch and we'd look and we'd audit the facilities. We had our whole audit base where we'd check locks and we'd, we'd look at performance numbers. Um, and we would work it that way. So the key is documentation, right? Systems and processes in place for everybody and a centralized communication that is also recording the communication. So you can look back and see what's happening. um, I can't stress documentation. You need to understand communication when people were told to come in, when they weren't, when things happened. Once again, especially with auctions, things like that, that is so, so important. Um, communication. I like not being with the person on site, but being with a call center. So it is a verified trained person. So someone on the ground just isn't saying stuff that shouldn't be saying things to people like, Oh yeah, I'm sure you could do this. Or yeah, I didn't think because they don't know or understand it's not their business. Mm-hmm. So communication with the customers needs to be controlled and documented always. Um, that's why call centers were great because they do that. um, and then it can be very hands off, though. Um, and the larger the facility, the easier that is, and the easier it works to run um, in another state because of the fact that I no longer uh, or I have a manager on site. Um, but yeah, that's how we did it. That's how we run it. Um, we run our facilities that are close to us the exact same as we do. That are far from us. When I'm looking at reports, when I'm handling facilities. It doesn't make a difference if you're in if you're three states away or if you're in our backyard.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think a lot of people kind of get caught up in that um, analysis paralysis situation, uh, especially just when you first start looking at markets that you're not familiar with, um, and just getting to know some of those markets. It can be difficult, um, and I think that's really kind of what holds people back. But that's that's such an, I guess, such a revealing statement as far as like. You're right. I mean, the the facilities we have that are ten minutes down the road from our office right now, it, they're being managed no differently than the ones that are three hundred miles away. And um, if it's funny too that you guys built out those systems that weren't, and I know I know you guys did it by design um, that that weren't related to uh, or dependent on your time and or your again your geographical area. Um, and those, that's that's what you need to be able to scale. So if you're getting it, getting into building out these systems that allow you to uh, own and operate a facility that's several thousand miles away or around the country, whatever it is, you're going to be able to scale, build your business, build your storage portfolio. Um, if, if you can run a facility that's across the country, you're going to be able to one, run one that's in the backyard or wherever, uh, which is huge.
0: Yes, exactly. And so once again, the um, – the key is reducing that risk from two sides it's knowledge and operational ability and um if you can focus on that how do you execute and how do you limit risk through that then then you're fine and uh, um i think this is a great product to do it. it it you know once again the bigger you get um the more There is, as far as operations, you're implementing products, things like that. But even online, some of the stuff you can automate, like uh, insurance, things like that. So it's not that it can't be done. And I would rather incur that risk because that's risks that I can figure out and I can solve as we go on a good deal. On a bad deal or not a good deal in a bad market, it doesn't matter what I do operationally. I can't fight the market. So... If I – I would rather take risk of me being an idiot because I can learn than the market or the location or the asset uh, not being a good deal because those are things I can't can't fight against.
1: Mm -hmm. You have no control over. Exactly. Um, And really like the through line of this whole entire thing is is going back to identifying good deals in good markets. Yes. Um, And we actually just did a whole episode on that very topic. So, um, it's just a couple episodes ago. If you guys go back, um, you can listen to that. And then we also did an episode right before that one as well. Um, that was an intro to the self-storage industry, um, kind of went over, you know, the good things, the bad things where the opportunity is. Um, but then, yeah, we threw out that episode that, that really just touched on how to identify these good markets and how to identify these good deals and that exact process to, uh, go through and do that. So go back and check out that episode. Um, it's a super awesome episode take notes and, uh, It'll be sad. It's a really good one.
0: Yeah. And um, two guys, thanks for everything. The reviews, you know, we mentioned this in the follow-up. So I want to keep mentioning it. Remember, we're trying to get through all the calls. Um, We're re-reaching out. We're trying to prioritize, once again, um, potential investors or deal flow. You can just go to the site, put stuff in. Um, I'm bringing this up once again because we get – tons of emails and calls and questions about it. You get a few, yeah. Yeah, just just a few. (laughs) Um, And for the 15-minute calls, the book review, as well as the podcast review, make sure you include those to get it. And we're trying to get to everybody. Please be patient. Um, We are so grateful for the support um, of the podcast and of the book and everything we're doing um it's just awesome and i really i've loved reaching out to everybody i love talking with you um and that's something we we want to continue so we just need to be organized and um implement it and it's going to take us a little while to get to everybody but um if you want to reach out instagram i, I and if you got a question i usually shoot back a video um that's easy way for me to communicate and also to share our stuff online share it on instagram and uh, tag tag me and I'll share I'll it back out. Uh, we appreciate the support, everybody.
1: Absolutely. And if you haven't picked up AJ's book, you should totally do that. Yes. It's a, it's a bomb book. It's super good. Super <laughs> it's good. huge. <laughs> it's awesome. So go check that out. Uh, everything's on the website, selfstorageincome.com. And uh, we'll catch you guys next time.
0: Thanks.